You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Then we'll close the week with his message at the Washington, D.C. Leadership Conference 1988. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, here is Chuck Colson on Today in the Word Radio. Well, I'm very honored to be here today. This is my third or perhaps even fourth Founders Day. My dear, beloved friend George Sweeting was reminding me as we were sitting here listening to that wonderful, absolutely beautiful music. And uh, so I'm really honored to be invited back and, inv- and delighted to be here with Joe Stowell, whom I admire so greatly and have such respect and affection for, and I'm so glad that he is at the helm of this great Moody Bible Institute. I woke up this morning, as a matter of fact, I've been on the road for 17 days. I'm a little tired. I slept in this morning just a bit, but I woke up, flipped on the radio, and there was Joe preaching a marvelous message on power. And so I really appreciate Joe's ministry, and I greatly appreciate WMBI, the number of times that I have been on that radio network. And I want to tell you, that's a world-class radio network. That's Christian radio that holds its own with anyone. Let me, for my message today, take you through a few familiar scriptures very quickly, and you may not want to follow along because I'll read very quickly, and some of them are familiar to you. The first chapter of Isaiah and the 17th verse, or the last words of the 16th and 17th, cease to do evil learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And then those memorable words that are now inscribed on the statute commemorating Martin Luther King. The words from Amos, let justice roll down like living waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Come over with me to the New Testament, to the first chapter of Romans, and to a verse that will be familiar to all of you, I'm sure, who are here today and those who are listening in the radio audience. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And over to the fifth chapter of that beautiful epistle and the first verse, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, I pray that those words will be burned into our consciousness in these next moments as we seek your will and your righteousness in our lives and in our nation. Use your servant now and speak through us, Lord, that people might not hear me, but they might hear the voice of even him, yes, the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was just before the turn of the century that Dwight L. Moody died, just eight days before the turn of the century. I couldn't help but reflect as I was thinking this morning about this message, what Moody would think if he were here today looking at 20th century America in the year 1990, 90 years after the turn of the century. We're approaching the turn of another century. I happen to enjoy history, and I've read through the history of Western civilization, and there has been no century like this, the 20th century, that has marked such extraordinary 
changes in the human condition and changes in the world and changes in science and medicine and travel and in, in, in the way we communicate with one another. It's absolutely extraordinary. Just look at the changes in medical science. Ninety years ago, the life expectancy, if you were born in 1900, the life ex your life expectancy was 47 years. If you're born today, your life expectancy is 75 years. Unbelievable progress in medicine, open heart surgery, organ transplants, fiber optics where we can take tubes and run them into a person. My life was saved a few years ago when a fiber optic tube was put into my stomach and I was diagnosed as having a tumor which was removed, the kind that would never before the last decade have ever been discovered. Antibiotics, cures for polio, tetanus, typhoid, cholera, extraordinary infant mortality at the turn of the last century was 150 deaths per thousand. Fifteen percent of the babies born at the turn of the century died. And now that is ten per thousand. Just think of travel. It is in this century that we developed the combustible engine and then the jet engine and then a rocket. Incredible. At the turn of the century, remember that popular book, Around the World in 80 Days, Phineas T. Fogg? Today we go around the world in 36 hours in a 747. That holds the record. We go around the world with, in a matter of hours with satellites. Instant transportation and travel. Communications. Computers. I'm not sure that that's entirely a blessing because I can't run a word processor, so I'm becoming increasingly illiterate. But we think of the extraordinary ability to communicate fax machines. We can send a document from one end of the world to the other instantly by telephone communication. Space travel, interplanetary orbits. We know more about the universe than we ever imagined possible a hundred years ago. And in terms of the conditions under which we live, most People in middle-class America and a nation like this own their own homes, plumbing, sewerage, all of these are 20th century inventions and developments, unemployment insurance, the standard of living rising. On almost every front we see remarkable human progress except one. One area in which we've seen absolutely no progress in the 20th century, the condition of the human heart. I don't mean the heart that you can take out now and transplant with new organs or bypasses. I mean the sin which is in our hearts. The 20th century is the bloodiest century in human history. Never been a case, Hegel in the, 18th, Hegel in the 19th century wrote, that man would be educated out of sin. Look at the history of the 20th century. 20,000 people murdered in America last year, more than the worst year of the Vietnam War, one a night being shot and killed in the nation's capital, the District of Columbia. Man's inhumanity to man. We've done absolutely nothing to be able to change that. And why? Because we've lost sight of the most basic truth of the Scripture. The most fundamental of all of Jesus' teaching. People say to me sometimes, what is it you would most like to say to the secular culture? And what I would most like to say to the culture, secular culture, the one verse out of Scripture, is when Jesus said, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles him. 
for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And in this century, when we've been able to make the most remarkable progress in human history, we have not been able to do a thing to change the heart of man. Crime, rampant. The scientists can work in their laboratories, the engineers, the government officials. They can't do it. It only happens one way, and that is when righteousness comes into a person's life, when we are declared righteous by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. In no other way can man's heart be changed. I'm so glad you picked the script, the theme for this Founders Day week of righteousness. Because I think it is the one ingredient that our society today so desperately needs, and it is when we understand it, the central commandment of our God to us that we be righteous. The verses of Scripture that I read to you earlier do justice, cease doing evil, care for the widows and orphans. Were those words from Amos, let justice roll down? The word justice appears throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes those of you who are reading from the King James will see the word judgment in its place. But the word justice is a central word throughout the Old Testament, at least now in all of the newer translations. We tend to think of that word in terms of its secular definition. The sheriff is here today and a judge. We tend to think of that in terms of the justice system. We tend to think of justice in terms of everyone getting his or her due. And then we politicize the term. Conservatives think it means everybody gets punished for what they've done wrong. And liberals tend to think it means in our society everyone should get an equal share of the blessings in our society. That's the secular definition. That's not the biblical definition. And then we've been further split in the church and confused over that word, justice. We've, over the last few years, begun to think of ministries that are justice ministries. That is, that go to feed the poor and have compassion for hurting and suffering people or go to work in the prisons. We think of that as justice ministries. And over here, we think of soul-winning ministries. And the two kind of split. And there's sort of bickering between the two. And there's a division within the church. And it's because we don't understand what that word justice means. And then sometimes we tend to think of justice or judgment as simply an Old Testament concept. That is, that God reigned in his heaven and poured his vengeance out upon a rebellious and disobedient people. Whereas in the New Testament, God is a God of grace who simply showers his blessings upon us. But it all comes from not understanding the word justice. The word justice in the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew, sadak. And the literal translation of the word justice from the Hebrew is righteousness. It isn't everyone not getting their due or their just return out of society. It isn't people being punished. It is righteousness. What God is saying is be righteous. Be like me. I am a holy God who has created this universe and I want this universe to be righteous because I am a righteous God. In Jeremiah, he says, the name of God is the Lord, our righteousness. It is the very essence of the God we worship. We really see this when we look at what is the heart of the New Testament. 
those wonderful words of the Apostle Paul. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Those words which warmed the heart of John Wesley and led to his conversion and to the great awakening of the 19th century. This is the gospel. But what does that word literally mean? The righteousness of God, we are justified, we are made just. What it simply means is the same as in the Old Testament, that is that we are declared just and righteous before God by our faith in Jesus Christ. It is exactly the same word. And it's very interesting when the Septuagint was translated, when they took the Old Testament and translated it into Greek, the word they used for justice in the Old Testament was exactly the same word that they used in the New Testament, dekeasuno, meaning righteous. It's the central concept of the Scripture. It isn't any difference between the Old and the New Testament in the sense that what God is calling us to be is a righteous people who by our faith make witness of the righteousness of God in society and in the structures of the world and at the same time are declared righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. When this is understood, it revolutionizes the church. There was a monk in the 16th century. He was cloistered. He was deeply, deeply troubled. Some people thought he was neurotic, in fact. Deeply troubled because he could never measure up to the justice of God. He felt inadequate. As a matter of fact, he wrote once that though an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And then this monk sitting in his monastery wrote, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasp that the justice of God is his righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. When that monk understood that the centrality of the biblical vision for the church, the centrality of the message of the gospel, that God's message to his people is righteousness, when that monk understood it, it changed the world because that monk was Martin Luther. He understood And what flowed forth from that was a movement of God's people that reformed not just oppressive ecclesiastical structures, but the entire structures of society. And when the Reformation spread into Scotland, people had the realization for the first time that they could stand sovereign before a sovereign God, that they needed no mediating influence. The very basis of democracy was born out of that Reformation when that monk understood that righteousness was the central call of the scripture, that we are to be a people who are righteousness made by a righteous God and that we are declared righteous by our faith in Christ and it's the same righteousness modern American society needs to understand this so desperately we are so smug we are so self-assured we are so self-confident 
we figure we can do just about anything. And the fact is that without righteousness in our society and righteousness in our hearts, we are absolutely helpless. The age-old question that moral philosophers have debated, can man be good without God? The answer is no. Man cannot be good without God. I see this in the area in which God has called me to work crime and justice. The criminal justice system in America is failing. The criminal justice system in America is broke. We have doubled the prison population of America over the last decade, and according to the present projections, we will double it again in the next five years in America. $25 billion worth of prisons are presently under construction. And with all of that, you would think we could do something to stop crime, wouldn't you? Last year, violent crime went up in America 5.5%. The prisons simply don't rehabilitate. I can tell you that from having been in prison myself. I ran the washing machine and the prison laundry. Next to me was the former chairman of the board of the American Medical Association. He was running the dryer. Some days... <laughs> some days he would run the washing machine. I'd run the dryer. <laughs> little variety. Saw men in that place with nothing to do, no place to go, staring into the emptiness. There's nothing you can do to put a person in a hole like that that'll change their hearts. And it's only as you change the heart that they can be changed. And that's why 74% of the people commit new crimes within four years of the time they're released from prison. Criminal justice system is simply failing in America. It's failing to provide relief to the victims. It's prevailing, failing to provide Shalom, peace in the community. In most American cities, we're afraid, justly so, to walk down the streets at night. And it is certainly failing in government in terms of the costs which we're incurring. I had the Commissioner of Corrections of California come into my office recently and he said, Mr. Colson, what am I going to do? We built $3.6 billion worth of new prisons in the state of California recently. He said, We're presently 30,000 beds short. I can't get any more money, and it's costing me $2.3 billion to run the prisons in the state of California. And all across the country, I was just with the governor of Indiana two days ago. I'll be with several political officials over the next several weeks, all of whom are throwing up their hands in despair. It simply isn't working. And the reason it isn't working is that we believe that there's an institutional solution because there's institutional solutions in the problems of medicine and science and travel and we don't realize that what we're dealing with is that which defiles a man, that which comes out of the inside and that the one answer is to do something in that person's heart. So evident is that in the drug case. Drugs are responsible for about 80% of the crime in America today. I watched President Bush give his speech, The War on Drugs, last fall. And I worked with President Bush for four years when we were in the government at the same time. I have great respect for him. But I watched that speech, and I was anguishing because he was saying, what we've got to do is double the prison population. What we've got to do is put more prosecutors to work, more police on the streets. We've got to crack down, and we've got to get really tough, and we've got to seal off the borders, and we've got to win the war on drugs. And Senator Joe Biden came on to respond to him from the Democratic side in the Senate and said President Bush is wrong. We've got to do even more prisons, even more prosecutors, even more judges. We've just got to do more. And the politicians keep giving us the same answers to the solutions which have failed so consistently for the past 20 years. The fact of the matter is, folks, and this will sound a little bit radical to some of you, the fact of the matter is that we could seal off the borders tomorrow. 
that we could quadruple the prison population of America, we could put hundreds of thousands of more police to work, we could send the Marines into Columbia to burn the cocoa fields, they're not as good as they were when I was in the Marine Corps, but they're still pretty good. They could wipe out those cocoa fields, we could seal the borders, and you wouldn't stop drug use in this country one iota. Why? Let me give you the best illustration. I spent seven months in prison, guard towers, fences, guards, security, people searched going in and out. I never went to sleep one night without smelling marijuana burning. The problem is much deeper than just building prison. Now, we ought to be locking up drug pushes, and we ought to be trying to seal off the borders, and we ought to be doing all these things, but not deluding ourselves. The problem is not on the supply side. If people want to get stoned, they will get stoned. The problem is on the demand side, and we've got to do something to change people's habits and values. And that begins, friends, with us showing society a whole new moral vision of righteousness. You can really understand the drug problem when you see what we're doing with kids today. Coming out of broken homes with no moral teaching, professors Wilson and Ernstein say that the, that the moral formation, the morally formative years are one to six. And I might say to you mothers who are listening, I know that it's tough today to make ends meet with one wage earner in the family, but if you've got children at home between the ages of one and six, I know it may mean a sacrifice to stay home with those kids, but I'll guarantee you that's a whole lot more important than a VCR or a microwave. Take care of those kids and give moral training ages one to six. And so these kids are coming out of homes with no moral training, and they're going to schools. And I know everybody says that the schools are value neutral in America. I don't believe that. I believe the schools in America are basically value hostile. They're opposed to teaching values. And so you take kids who get no moral training at home, you put them out into schools where they're not taught right and wrong, and they sit in front of a television set for seven hours and 36 minutes a day, and they watch commercials which say, you only go away around this way once, so grab for all the gusto while you can. They believe pleasure is the object of life. If pleasure is the object of life, why not go out and sniff cocaine? That you'll get high on and get a lot of pleasure from. And then when they do that, we arrest them, throw them in prison. They think we're crazy, and so do I. The only way you're going to stop the drug problem in America is when people begin to teach their kids right and wrong in the homes, when the schools teach values, and when the church of Jesus Christ demonstrates to society a moral vision of righteousness, there's a better way to live, there's the hope of something better in life than simply personal pleasure, which is what our society today teaches is the goal of life. It's a lie. And people are addicted to that lie more than they're addicted to chemicals. And then, friends, they've got to have the gospel. I was in Kansas City recently, and I was getting ready to speak, and the governor of Missouri had come over to speak that night at our banquet of prison fellowship. And before he got up, a man to speak, a man got up who stole the night. He said, my name is Jimmy. I was in prison. I was a mainline heroin addict. I spent most of my life pumping needles into my arms. He said, I one day was sitting in the cell and somebody gave me a dog-eared, tattered copy of a book called Born Again. I read it. I gave my life to Christ. The next day, the desire for drugs left. I've not had a desire for drugs since I was released from prison. I'm now working with Philemon. 
a group of ex-offenders that Prison Fellowship has started, starts in the cities around the country, and he stood there with his wife, the most beautiful trophy of God's grace, the answer to the drug problem in America because it cures the evil which comes out of the human heart, the one thing that science and medicine for all of its vaunted successes in the 20th century can't cope with. Changing the heart. And that's our challenge, friends. The need for righteousness, which is the call of the church. That's exactly what that theme is of justice in the Old Testament carried over to justification in the New Testament. It is for society to be righteous because it was created by a righteous God and for us to be made righteous by our faith in Christ. When the church sees that as its central biblical vision, it does not see the church as simply a place to go on Sunday morning and get your spiritual strokes. And that's the curse of the church today. You know, i got to speak to you very candidly. We're losing out to the New Age movement. 24% of the American people believe in reincarnation. You know, why they, you know why the New Age movement is gaining so rapidly? Most people today look at the church as a place you go to be made to feel good on Sunday morning and or, to, or to listen to the pastor's sermon and critique it. Don't, isn't that what they do to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you come to church simply to be made to feel good, if that's the only reason you come, you might as well go to the New Age movement because they can make you feel a whole lot better. All we can do is teach you how to worship God, but they will tell you that you can be God. Shirley MacLaine, $300, you can be God. What a frightening thought that she's God. <laughs> if there's any hope in this society today which is beset by a crisis of character, right across the board where values are being disregarded, where people are living by a self-centered, self-obsessed value standard. If there is any hope, it is that this society have a massive dose of God's righteousness and that only comes when God's people take seriously the commandments of righteousness in scripture and live them out in society. When the church becomes the mirror image of God's righteousness living out our faith in society. That's the only way we're going to restore ethics. You know, it's so, it's so tragic to see today the great debate going on in our society. How can we restore ethics? Somebody gave Harvard Business School $30 million and said it set up a course on ethics. They did that. A friend of mine, as a matter of fact, gave them the $30 million. Gave it to them five years ago, four years ago. <clears throat> they still don't really have a course in ethics. They're sitting on the $30 million. I call them every six months and ask them why. They finally got a professor named and they now have a refresher course in three weeks in ethics and a friend of mine just took it and the net result of that course in ethics was don't do something if it's going to get your name in the newspaper because that might get you in trouble. <laughs> Utilitarian ethics. That is good business makes good ethics. That's what happens to a society that has lost its standards of absolute truth. That's what happens to a society that has become relativistic. That is what happens to a society that has become self-obsessed and self-indulgent. And the government can't restore character to society. Education is not going to restore character to society because it's the hotbed of relativism. Certainly the media is not going to restore character to society. Phil Donahue and Oprah Winfrey bring the arbiters of moral wisdom in America. Huh. Who's going to do it? The family and the church. 
our business. But the church has got to be, to borrow Luther's phrase, the church has got to be the church. We've got to live out our faith in every walk of life. We've got to be a people who take seriously God's inerrant word and live under its authority. We've got to be a confessing, repentant people. We've got to be a people who realize that the church is not a place to come to be made to feel good, but it's a place to come to be equipped, to be the saints, to go out these doors and to live that gospel out in the street in every walk of life so that people see it. The object of the church, the only society, organization and society formed for the benefit of its non-members. The only society, as a matter of fact, to which in order to get in, you've got to acknowledge you're a sinner. The society which comes together to be the body of Christ. I've come to the conclusion having been half of my adult life in government and politics and now the last 15 years in Christian service, that if there's any hope for our society today, that it is that we come to terms with the truth of Jesus Christ and his central message, that is what defiles a man is that which comes out of his heart. If you've come in here today, and I don't know for what reason some of you may have come as guests or you may have come out of curiosity to hear Chuck Colson, and you have never made a personal profession of your faith in Jesus Christ as the living Savior, do not walk out of here today without praying that prayer. Some people have anniversaries, wedding anniversaries, birthdays to celebrate. I have a third anniversary that most people don't have. Just 10 days ago, I celebrated my 15th 15th year of being out of prison. On January 31st was my 15th anniversary from being released from prison. I got up that morning and I was in awe of what God had done in my life. As I sat with my devotional and reading a Spurgeon sermon, as a matter of fact, I was thinking to myself, isn't it incredible what God has done using my life in the prisons around the world to touch other people? And then I was overwhelmed by an even more powerful thought. Even greater than what God has done in my life touching the lives of tens of thousands of others and working in criminal justice systems and working for criminal justice reform, righteousness in the structures, and working to bring the gospel with 33,000 volunteers who work all around America, bringing the gospel into the prisons, and our angel tree program with 105,000 kids last year getting Christmas gifts whose mother or daddy was in prison. Greater than those things was what I now can look back and realize God has done and continues to do in purifying my own heart. I looked back on my life and realized I was guilty of every one of the seven deadly sins. That I was really a miserable person. On the outside, I was a prosperous, successful lawyer and politician. On the inside, I was wretched. And I'm not there yet. None of us are. We simply walk along that road as... The Lord day by day teaches us and helps us to grow. But I could see over that 15 years the profound difference that Jesus Christ makes in relationships, in my family, in my friends, in what's important to me in life, in the goals and visions and dreams that we can have when we follow Christ. And if you've never known him, don't go out of here today without making that kind of a commitment. And then I would beg of you, those I implore you, those of you who know Christ, 
Be serious today about following him. Understand that the call upon your life is not simply to study the scripture, not simply to come to church and sing hymns and beautiful music like we've had today, not simply to feel good that you're saved, but rather to live the gospel in every way. I love St. Francis' words, preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. Live it. Let the righteousness of God show forth in every aspect of your life. The central biblical commandment is do justice, be righteous. The name of the Lord is righteousness and you are declared righteous by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ and live that out that this society might have a massive dose of the one thing it cannot do and that is to bring righteousness into the human hearts. That trust is upon us, my brothers and sisters. God bless you. been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.